The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com slash guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. Ah, but which Claire Armitstead? The question arises because this week's programme is all about the fluidity of identity. As Oscar Wilde once said, most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives are mimicry, their passions are quotation. We speak with Vendela Vida and Kevin Barry, two more recent writers who have explored this issue from very different perspectives. Kevin Barry proved himself a master of different identities. I love your Cornelius voice. Is it my Cornelius? <laughs> That's good. fantastic. Great, yeah. <laughs> and Vendela Vida discusses her novel, The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, which was inspired by her own loss of identity when her bag was stolen on holiday with her passport in it. Who are you when the documentation of your existence is stripped away? But we start with Kevin Barry, who was arguably a different person when he came into the studios to speak with Richard Lee than he is today. He didn't yet know that he was shortly to win the Goldsmiths Prize for Innovative Fiction with his latest novel, Beetlebone. In this shape-shifting tale, John Lennon heads to the west coast of Ireland in 1978 for solitude and somewhere to scream away his writer's block in privacy. Kevin begins with John and his sidekick, Cornelius, driving across the hills of Ireland on the start of John's great adventure. How does it feel to be the brand new Mr. Me? The van's a bone rattler, a money shaker, all rust and lung disease, and it screeches for debt as it revs up pace for the sudden turns and the gut-heaving drops. See now how the land falls away. There is mist on the hills. He can see reaching for the crags and granite tops the wispy fingers of the mist on the hills. And Cornelius's blue eyes are set to a high, murderous burn, his hilarity. And John is on the lamb and loves it, although he has a sad stretch about home. But just for a half mile or so, it passes. And the van screams and barks, and it smells of the other Monday's fish. John's stomach lurches, his soul groans. He lights another fag, and evil jetan. There's one day I'd be after mackerel, Cornelius says. Another day I'd be dosing sheep. Another again I'd be playing the chauffeur. Only last Thursday gone I dug a grave for a man that took a sudden stroke. Sixty-two years of age and only trying to watch a bit of television. God rest him. Cornelius quickens the van for a blind turn. He accelerates again to come out of the bend. He plays at full volume a vile country music, all twangy hoedowns and cry it to the moon laments, but in awful, reaching, sobbing, spud Irish voices. John eyeballs the fucker hard. Cornelius, but he has paid no mind. He slaps eject to pop the cassette, but Cornelius slaps it back to play again. Ray Lynham, he says, that's one powerful fucking singer. Keep the dogs at bay. This is the most important thing. Keep the hissing pack at bay and get me to my fucking island. His new friend whistles jauntily as he steers the van. Cornelius! Yes, John. You realise it's extremely fucking important that no one knows I'm out here? I do, of course. Because it would ruin everything, Cornelius. It would defeat the whole fucking purpose. 
I understand, John, but I've a feeling the fuckers aren't far from our trail. How can you tell? From the way the air is settling around us. His eyes shoot to the rear view, to the wings. Do you understand what I mean by that, John? I have no fucking idea, Cornelius. The ground can be kind of thin around here, John. Thin? Which means all you have to do is listen. The van spins into the mist. Cornelius taps time on the wheel. John is not used to the company of males anymore. All the musk and hilarity in contest. Slate grey to sea green, the hills fall away. Melancholy too can gleam, jewel-like, as in the rain's sheen that blackens stone. And Cornelius steers blithely, and he beats time with his thumbs. He turns happily. Tell me just the one thing, John. Yes? Why is it you want to go to this little island? Because I want to be that fucking lonely, I'll want to fucking die. Cornelius jaws on this for a bit and winces, and he nods it through. He is at length satisfied. I have you now, he says. How does it feel to be the brand new Mr. Me? So I want to start off by asking how did you wind up imagining John Lennon setting out for a tiny island in the west of Ireland in 1978? Were you trying to reclaim him a little bit for Ireland? I guess so, yeah, bring him back into the, the wonderful Irish diaspora. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was my bicycle, really, to sound all Flan O'Brien about it, that took me out to the story. The two wheels? The two, a two-wheeler. I go cycling around County Mayo, around Clue Bay, and I had this little piece of arcane cultural trivia lodged in my brain that, oh, John Lennon used to own one of those tiny islands down there. I wonder which one. And it, it kind of kept coming back to me, and I tried to deal with it in lots of ways. I wrote a little radio piece, wrote an essay, referred to it in a short story, and then one kind of dark, fateful morning, I found myself scratching down some dialogue, and, of course, I immediately thought, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble here. I'm actually going to try this as a novel, aren't I? So how did you try and get into the head of a man like John Lennon to explore the identity of such a public figure? I'd, I had a very strange image in mind, actually, of a deep, fat friar. I, kind of, I was imagining the inside of a great artist's brain as like a bubbling cauldron, and I wanted to lower the reader. Hot down, and oily. Hot and oily and spitting grease and fat and feathers, and I wanted to lower him down into the reader, him or her down into it, and see how they would get on. Um, it just took, it took so many drafts to get a voice that I was kind of happy with. It was the voice you're after. Yeah, and, and like the only real research I did involved watching YouTube clips of 70s chat shows from the US just to get his intonation and it, and it gave me two things very quickly one was that it sounded antique his mode of talk it sounded like another era and I realised to my horror I was writing historical fiction which I always <laughs> vowed I would never I would never do um, but also it showed me how capricious he was in, in his speech his moods would change very very quickly he would be very light and fluffy and charming and funny one moment then dark and spiky and kind of paranoid and to get that on the page is really difficult so it was uh, a real act of ventriloquism oh, completely like, so yeah did you find yourself kind of thinking or feeling Should, like and you him? know what as, as, as a novelist I'm kind of I kind of operate like a, a kind of a, a frustrated actor or something sometime it's very much about getting a voice right and and it just took so many drafts, this, because I, I, was, I was cleaning out my shed that I work in outside of the house in County Sligo in the summer after finishing and counting up the rough drafts, you know. And I, it's a short novel, 50,000 words, but there must have been 350,000, 400,000 words written for it just to, and it just reams of the stuff, really, and just cutting through. And it took a few years, you know, until 
I think about two or three years and actually when the character Cornelius started to come to life as a real sidekick for John, the thing started to lift up off the desk and I realised it was really, in fact, a very old-fashioned novel. It was Don Quixote in, in all essentials. Well, or Mephistopheles, maybe. Who's, uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. It, it, Leading it, him down the garden path yeah, somewhere. Yeah, and it, it was a picaresque, you know, so it, it this, this kind of gave it form for me and... and, and of the four years I spent on it, the last year was great fun. Once you have the voices, you can kind of invent at will and, 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 and you can make, make, make big gains very quickly. Without wanting to spoil too much for the reader, the, the author makes a brief appearance just about, just about halfway through the novel to tell us about his researches, which resemble yours, yes. into John Lennon and his own trip to Dornish as well, ducking out again 20 or so pages later. Yeah. How did he get in there? I, I, it was, I was in a pub in London and I realised I had loads of different notes for this all over the place on the backs of envelopes, on the backs of beer mats, tapped into the phone and I thought I'm going to buy a nice new fancy moleskin type notebook and I'm going to gather all my notes together, I'm going to collate them and I started copying them in and I found these very nice paragraphs starting to form and I thought, wow, this story is really nice just told kind of straight in how I came upon it in what actually happened when John bought this island out there of the west of Ireland and its kind of freak communities at that time in the 60s and 70s and I thought I'm going to plonk an essay right down in the middle of this and, and I'm always interested in anything that's that's really tricky to do so I thought can I walk out the door of my novel for 8,000 words and then walk back in again but as I was writing it I found I was going into real kind of emotional country with this essay and I thought this is really the emotional heart of the book, you know, and, and, and it, it wrote itself so easily, that section, and I think it holds the book together. Um, I think the trick for the reader with this book, if you go with the essay, you'll go with the novel. Um, and it, I thought I could hold the reader because the theme remains the same. It's all about getting to an island. How do you get to the island? What that means literally and, and, and metaphorically, I guess. But it was because the form of the words that you came up with was it held together. It kind of it just packed. these paragraphs very, very naturally started to form and come into play. And I was actually in Montreal at the time for almost a year, looking out at minus twenty-five degrees Celsius, in and, and a snowbound city, and very suddenly finding I had the heart of this book as I wrote. In, in the eye voice. And of course, anytime you put an eye voice down on the page, it, there is always an element of fiction too about it. But, but it is more or less me that, that shows up there. Well, it's very tempting for the reader to make that slide between your author on the page yeah. and you yourself cycling around mm. in, you know, in, west, in the west of Ireland, uh, hoping somehow the material is going to come together. I mean, it's, was, was, it, was, it very much, was it very much yourself? Yes, it was. And I mean, it's a book really about how do you make something? How do you, how do you make anything creative? How do you make a record? Or how do you make a novel? And it's about having to go to your own dark places and, and bring that out and, and put that, that on the page. It was also, it, it gave it the air of a little investigation, a creative investigation. And of course I had to do all sorts of things that are referred to in the book, like John is into primal scream therapy and that's why he's going to his island. So I had to scream when I got out to his island in Clue Bay. It was wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm right as rain since. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, I was wondering if it was a way of anchoring the book back to reality. Yes, bit. because what it is, what you have is this very tall tale, almost this shaggy dog story. But then suddenly I come along to say, but actually, here are the facts. And this is actually very possible in the way that it, it could have worked out. And then to re-enter the fiction. The and there's, there's, there's this black and white of the Amethyst Hotel, the hotel yes. that he winds up, and indeed your author, and presumably yourself, wind yes, up at. Yeah, yeah, it's now in a derelict state on Ackle Island, but I used it as a central setting for, for an, an, an episode in the novel, and I had to break in 
and have a look around the Amethyst Hotel, and it has a very strange and haunted air. And the fact of having those black and white pixels on the page, that kind of connects it to the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly the reader is kind of, I hope, brought up short and goes, oh, wow, hang on. Yeah, where exactly are we here between fiction and and, and reality? Do you seem very uh, alarmed by the prospect of historical fiction? (laughs) Well, I guess it was never a mode I would have expected to find myself in, but I kind of really, I'm just about old enough to have sense memories of of the 1970s, you know, but it's um, it's really strange to find yourself watching some footage from that time in the west of Ireland now in films by documentary maker Bob Quinn and people like that. It looks like the 30s. It looks such a distant era, you know, so 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 long ago um, that I realise, yeah, this is just about within the realms of if historical fiction now. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it once I got back there. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a surprise to me. I was wondering if that that uncomfortableness with the notion of a book set in a particular period was partly why that's the novel's so slippery about time, with John finding himself back in memories of yeah. 50s well, well, Liverpool or indeed invented memories of his, of his own father's yeah. time in the orphanage. Well, among my more esoteric ideas really is that time is unfixed and around certain regions of the west of Ireland, past and present and future tenses intermingle and coexist out there. Um, time is slippery. You know, it's, um, yeah, I, I mean, for everything I write, whether it's a short story or a novel or a script, it almost always starts with the place. It always starts with the feeling that gets trapped in a place and that reverberates. And I think human feeling settles into our places, into our hills and our fields and our streets and gives off strange vibrations. And as a writer, my method is to kind of space around the place on my bicycle and try and tune into the vibrations. It might look like I'm not up to very much if you saw me (laughs) out on the road, but I'm hard at it. You know, I'm tuning in very, very, very carefully. The novel is also not afraid at all to push beyond the real. Again, was that something about the places or was that more about the man, about the way that uh, a man yeah, like I John wa- Lennon might feel? I wanted it to be a properly wild and naughty book in, 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 in devotion to its, who its central character is. You know what I mean? I, I could imagine nothing worse than writing a safe novel about John Lennon. And actually early on when I started, I, I, I was looking at my material and think I could really do the standard biopic here very easily and probably could do quite a nice version of it but there's enough for a kind of standard story for sure yeah but i thought no i I want this to go really nutty and really crazy and like i love to operate kind of out on the very edge of believability the cusp of believability because it's the talking dogs and all all of that a dog who looks and sounds like brian wilson of the (laughs) beach boys um but yeah, it's a really interesting place to bring the reader because they're going, ah, oh, come on, no way, ah, oh, come on, put just maybe, you know. And it's a real test of you as a writer if you can bring them out there and just kind of dangle them over the edge all the time and then bring them back a little, you know. It's, it, it's a fun place to work. So you're always looking for some sort of subject that'll let you cut free a little. Yeah, but yeah. What are you working and on what, now? What's, what's, your, what's, what's your latest? I, I, I actually have two plays on, on, on the desk at the moment, um, a shortish piece and a, lo- a longer piece. And what was really nice about Beetlebone, actually, as a novel, is that it, it started to push me in certain directions. Like there are a couple of little plays in there. There's a long essay in the middle, and it's made me really interested in working more in plays and in, in the essay form as well. So it's great to get a creative project that opens up kind of new avenues for you to explore as a writer. Yeah, because dialogue is one of the strengths of the novel. It's, it's, it's got a, yeah. a lot of real fist. Is, is dialogue something you enjoy doing? 
Yeah, but you know what? Those are the bits that get worked and worked and worked to death. I mean, those stretches of dialogue with John and Cornelius will go through 100, 150 drafts. Um, they have to feel light and natural and easy on the page. And to get that airiness into them takes so much heavy lifting and rock-breaking work and going through it endlessly pen in hand and the manuscript in hand and cutting and cutting and cutting. Um, I enjoy doing it. I, I know I have a natural ability with dialogue and I think if you're good at something you can be great at it if you really, really work. Um, but the engines of the book are certainly those dialogues and monologues. So in, in weird ways it's like a radio play. You know, it's like a play for voices, an old-fashioned play for voices. Oh, thank you very much. That's, that, was, that was delightful. <laughs> thank you, Richard. Cheers. How does it feel to be Kevin Barry talking there to Richard Lee. And Beetlebone is out now from Canongate. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. From the west coast of Ireland, we move to the north coast of Africa, Casablanca to be precise. Our guide is Vendela Vida, who lives in San Francisco, though her mother was Swedish, her father Hungarian. Perhaps inevitably, identity, the world and our place within it plays a strong part in her fiction. The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, her fifth book, takes this one step further. In it, she explores what might happen if you were to arrive in a country, lose every proof of who you were, and discover you rather enjoy playing at being someone else. When the diver's clothes lie empty, the protagonist arrives in Casablanca, Morocco, and shortly after her arrival, she becomes a stand-in for a famous American actress. The famous American actress gets so accustomed to her being a stand-in for her onset that soon she asks her to be a stand-in for her offset as well, and so she requests that she goes on a date in her place. The famous American actress requests that the protagonist goes on a date in her place with a a very wealthy Russian businessman named Leopoldi. Because the famous American actress has some some a leverage over the stand-in and knows some things about the stand-in that she doesn't want revealed, she has no choice but to go. So this is the scene in which the protagonist, who is um, is nameless, the protagonist is you. The story is told in the second person. So uh, when I say you, um, I'm talking about you, the listener. So this is the start of the date. You climb the stairs of the restaurant, the walls covered with fishnets and ship's wheels. At the top, near a topless mermaid that once helmed a ship that most likely sank, you tell the maitre d' that someone is expecting you. You see your date standing in the corner of the room. He has a prime table with a view. He's in his late forties, wearing a suit and tie. He's tall and wide and not as unattractive as you expected, given that the famous American actress is passing him on to you. You know it's him because he stands with his arms outstretched and with an expression that seems about to say darling in Russian, except that he doesn't. He places his arms back at his sides and gives you a quizzical look. You walk up and greet him. You shake his hand and tell him your name is Reeves. Your name is not Reeves. 
So she's not coming, he says. His accent is less Russian and more global than you expected. You tell him that filming is running late. Right, he says, and I'm supposed to believe you? You have no answer for this. You didn't expect him to be so skeptical. You see the profound disappointment, even anger, on his face and reassure him she'll very likely be stopping by later. She said no such thing to you. He extends his hand toward your chair. It's turned toward the window, and this is your first clue that he cares about the famous American actress. If he simply wanted to show her off, he would have seated her so she faced out at the room. But she, and now you, are expected to face the window, out of which you can see a darkening sky, but little of the ocean, and nothing of the pier on which the restaurant is situated. You offer him a brief smile. His nose looks like it was broken, and he has a scar on his right cheek. His hair is gray, but still thick. He offers no smile in return. He simply stares at you like you're a practical item in a store that he's deliberating whether he wants to buy. The waiter approaches. He's an older Moroccan man with tired eyes, as though he's been working at this restaurant for too many years and has seen too many tourists, too many poorly matched couples. The waiter places two gin and tonics on the table, takes your order, and leaves. So who are you exactly, Leopoldi says. What do you do for her? You tell him you're her stand-in on set, just for this film, you explain. And now you're standing in for her date with me, he says, matter-of-factly. You explain again that she has to work late. It sounds less and less convincing. Well, let's make it a nice meal, Reeves, he says. Are you in agreement? You clink glasses. To a nice meal, you say. The gin and tonic has an immediate effect on him. You can see him relaxing, and he loosens his tie. His tie is expensive-looking, and like all expensive ties, has a stupid pattern. This one has little frogs. You wish he would take it off. He sees you staring at the tie. Isn't this the ugliest tie you've seen in your life, he says. You can't help it. You let out a laugh. You were thinking that, weren't you, he says. You were wondering why a handsome man like me would wear a tie like this. It is a tie for idiots. You weren't thinking that he was handsome, but you don't correct him on this point. Yes, you say. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I was thinking. She sent it to me from Japan, he says, from that movie she was doing there, the one with the montage of her eating 50 different bowls of rice. You know which film he's talking about. You chose not to see it. My guess is it wasn't her who picked it out, but the secretary, you venture. She has this very practical secretary who handles her life. She's maybe 20 years older, and smiling for her is a considerable challenge. Are you trying to make me feel better, Leopoldi says. Is that supposed to make me feel better, that she had her secretary pick out a romantic present for me? He seems incensed, and his face pinkens as though the tie is choking him. You apologize. You are thinking that you should leave before the drinks are finished. You have made a colossal error. Reeves, I'm just messing with you, he says. Of course that makes me feel better. I was going around thinking that she had the worst taste in the world picking out this tie with these toads on it. I mean, who would pick out such a thing? His laugh is uproarious. He laughs like a larger man than he is. Maybe it's the money, you think. Maybe when you have that much money in the bank, you can laugh uproariously like a very large man at things that aren't that funny. You turn slightly, your eyes searching for the waiter. The restaurant is starting to fill up with wealthy Moroccans and tourists. People sit at tables in strange configurations of four or seven or three, like their stars and constellations that will never be named.
The gin and tonic is getting into your head. You need the food to come. When it arrives, you dig into the black bass. The salad is sad-looking with leaky tomatoes and lettuce so pale it's white, but the bass is fresh. I like a woman with an appetite. Leopoldi says to you, "You smile with your mouth full." You realize the conversation is bound to turn more personal. You don't want him to ask you about yourself. You will need to ask him about him, about his business. You will need to act riveted by his responses. What do you do? You ask. It must be wonderful. Which business are you talking about? He says again, laughing and finding this overly entertaining. I own many companies. You ask him what his favorite is. My favorite company, he says. That's like asking a man who his favorite child is. You ask if he has children. Not a good topic right now, he tells you. There's some paternity testing going on. He seems upset with you. He focuses on his food. You want to remind him that he is the one who brought up children. But then a bottle of wine arrives and his mood brightens. The waiter pours you each a glass of Chardonnay. You were asking about my favorite business, he says. It's a cosmetic laser, a better one than what's out there right now for scars, acne. He explains. He's looking at your face. He leans over and softly takes your chin in his large hand and tilts your head to the side. With the fingers of his left hand, he brushes the bangs of the wig that you're wearing to resemble the famous American actress out of your face, so that he can see you more clearly. It's an intimate gesture, one that takes you by surprise. He studies your face so intently that for a moment you think you might cry. You don't think your husband ever examined your features so closely that he ever moved your hair out of your face. This was in large part why you married him. You liked the fact that he never stole glances at you, that he turned off the lights before you kissed. You thought that with him you could be invisible until you realized that wasn't at all what you wanted. May I ask what happened to your skin? Leopoldi says. Tiny tears are forming in the corner of your eyes, but he doesn't wish to embarrass you by asking about them. Instead, he says, "Despite your makeup, I can see teenage acne." You explain. He nods and lets go of your chin gently. You would not have expected him to be so careful with his touch. And you, you say, emboldened by his question, by his caress, may I ask about your scar? He puts down his fork and knife. This is going to be a story. I wasn't always so wealthy," he tells you. "I grew up poor in a little town between Moscow and St. Petersburg, on a farm. I was helping my father with a fence one day—a new barbed wire fence to keep the sheep from getting away. My brother was driving a tractor, and I was attaching the wire to the fence when it sprung out of my hand and slashed across my face. You have this in common—the marks of the past on your skin. You both look out the window. As though wanting to focus on the beauty of the outside world, but the sun has set now, and you see only your own reflections. So that was our nameless heroine, and by this time she has got a name, hasn't she? Because she adopts a series of them through the novel. 
Yeah, she takes on different names. Um, one is Sabine, one is Reeves. She takes on different names depending on what's offered to her, basically. She takes on the name of Sabine because she's given a passport, an American passport that has the name Sabine Elise on it. So for a while, she assumes that name and checks into a hotel under that name. But she gives a different name when she takes the job as a stand-in for the famous American actress. She takes on the name of her niece, Reeves, who she feels quite attached to. We don't quite know how attached she is to the niece until the end. It's one of the, a series of sort of drops that you put in, bits of information, little bombs that you detonate through the novel. I wanted to leave a series of clues throughout the book. I knew the reader knows right away that she's escaping something, that she's arrived in Morocco and then she's leaving some sort of past behind that she's wishing to escape. And so promptly upon arriving in, in Casablanca, her backpack is stolen and with it her laptop and her money, her bank cards, and her passport. Obviously, for most people, this would be a huge um, <laughs> a huge trauma. But for her, in some ways, even though it poses, obviously poses practical difficulties, but it also because of what she's recently experienced and what she's trying to leave behind by coming to Morocco, she also views the opportunity to be anyone she wants to be. In some ways, it provides a new liberation, a new possibility for a new identity. One of the strange things about this novel is that actually you would think logically, in reality, it would be impossible to disappear like she has disappeared and adopt different identities. She, for example, um, actually ends up with somebody else's backpack and their entire identity. You think, well, how long would it be until people caught up with her? Because you know, there's social networking, there's Interpol, there are all sorts of things. But somehow you create a, almost a gothic reality where it seems logical that she could disappear. The protagonist is also very aware of that, too, that she can only assume a new identity for a certain limited period of time before, as you say, you know, someone catches up with her and finds out what's going on. And that's why she, I think she keeps assuming these new identities. Every time she thinks she's about to get caught or that she might get found out, she takes on a new position. And that's what, why she becomes the she takes on the job to be the stand-in for the famous American actress, because it affords her, A, a way to stay in Morocco and B, a way to have income. This is your fourth novel, and your previous three were loosely conceived as a, a trilogy. Is, is that right? They, I once said that they were a trilogy. It was something that I later regretted. I think of them more as a triptych and that they're all about women who are running away from something, and they're all kind of dealing with issues of, of rage and violence. And what happened was I finished my first novel. I wrote a nonfiction book um, first that came out of my graduate thesis from Columbia. Um, and then my, after that, I wrote a novel called And Now You Can Go. And with that book, when I was done with it, I had that feeling that I hadn't said everything I wanted to say. And so I said, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll set out to write a trilogy, because then by the time I'm done with the third book, certainly I'll have said everything I wanted to say. And what happened then is I put a lot of pressure on the, on the third book. But I, I do see that those as all being related in some way. And this new novel, The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty, is obviously in some ways... Um, um, it's not so different from those, but in my own head, it's it's a different has a different tone. It's a little bit lighter, and I deliberately set out to, to write a book that would have more room for both suspense and humor. It, it's the similarities are the setting, for example. You, all your novels have been set in exotic locations, as Finland, Turkey, Morocco, in this case. So they're almost like there's a, a travelogue stream going on at the same time. I'm very influenced by landscape. I'm a huge Paul Bowles fan, not just a fan of Sheltering Sky, which is obviously also set in Morocco, but also his short stories. And I think what I really admire about Paul Bowles' work is that he doesn't use landscape just as a backdrop. Sometimes you can read a book and feel that the landscape just serves as kind of 
the backdrop would in a stage setting. You know, on a stage when you go to see a play, you see oh, there's some plants to suggest that, and a picnic bench to sh- to show that we're outside, and that just you know to, this is just a mere background detail. But the way that Paul Bowles uses landscape is he actually has the landscape create changes in character. In fact, landscape and sound together can often influence the plot in very dramatic ways. And so I've really been a fan of his work in that sense and really try to study the way he uses landscape. And to whatever extent I can, I try to use landscape in the same way. And have you been to these places? I have. I yeah, have. So you're a traveler yourself. I am a traveler. Yes, I am definitely guilty of traveling. I love stories that start with someone arriving in a new country. I think there's something really unique about having been on an airplane and stuck in you know, the tight confines of a plane and being released You know, when you land into a new country where you don't know necessarily the culture or the language or have any friends there. Um, you don't have the currency oftentimes. You don't ha- literally have the money to make exchanges for goods. And there's always that sense that you have that you you could be anyone at all. So that, you know, Especially if you don't have friends meeting you there, you don't know any, anyone in that country. There's no one there to tell you who you who you were. And so there's the opportunity to become someone else. You know, this, Writing this book really made me think about how much we're defined by the people who are around us in our everyday lives. You know, back at home, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm an editor, I'm a teacher. But if I travel somewhere else, if I'm not, there's no one there to remind me of who I am and what those titles are, then then who am I actually? (laughs) So that's always been of interest to me. You mentioned Paul Bowles, which is who's obviously a literary influence on this, but you also call on other um, art forms. So film is very important in this. We've we've heard uh, dating, well, just standing in for a famous actress mm-hmm. um, in a date. There are shades of the talented Mr. Ripley. Is that, would you say that there are, there's a bit of Patricia Highsmith in it? And is it the film or the, or the book oh, that it evokes? That's a great question. I once had a professor in grad school who advised me, if you ever get stuck in writing something, try to think of it in a different medium. So if you, you know, get stuck writing a scene, think to yourself, what would this look like if it were a play? What would this look like if it were a film? And I think I've taken that bit of advice very, very literally in the sense that when I do think about a book, I, and especially at the beginning, I think, okay, what, how would this start if this was a different art form? And I think about film a lot when I'm writing, um, especially because I try not to read a lot of fiction when I'm in the middle of writing a book because I don't want to be influenced in one way or the other by a particular writer. Um, but I do watch a lot of movies. That's what something I allow myself to do when I'm really deeply in a, involved in a book. And so I watched The Passenger, Antonioni's The Passenger, many, many times while writing The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty. And I also watched The Talented Mr. Ripley and also Purple Noon, another movie that's lesser known that's also based on the same Highsmith novel. And there's also quite a lot of Hollywood business, insider business. You, you make comedy out of um, the fact that there are pages shoved up underneath her door every day and quite a lot of business with wigs. <laughs> I wanted to do, play a lot with masks and wigs and the fact that she even has really bad um, teenage acne still on her skin that the makeup people you know, in the makeup department are constantly trying to cover over and, and thus making worse and making it more like a mask for her um, that she's you know, constantly washing off and trying to reapply. But I, I wanted to play a lot with doubles. And the, in terms of the Hollywood business, I, I've spent some time on movies. You worked with Sam Mendes. I worked with Sam Mendes on a film called Away We Go. And um, my husband and I co-wrote the script for it. That's, that's and, Dave Eggers, your husband. Right. And so we, I spent time on that, on that set and on other movie sets. And I guess the thing that's always intrigued me about movie sets is how 
absolutely boring <laughs> it's just that time on movie sets and I, th- I think it's not boring if you're the director and it's not boring if you're the actor and if you have something to do on the set it's not boring at all but if you're the writer or not even a writer if you're just visiting a set there's actually very little for you to do except for kind of you know check out the snack bar because what will happen on a given day is that the actors will go through the same scene maybe about oh 76 times because you know they're trying to get the scene right first of all and then they oftentimes the director is obviously trying to get the different shots from the front of the actor from behind get the side shots get some extra coverage just in case they have to dub something over and so i think that there's there's this preconception that it's all you know lights, camera, action. And my experience being on a a film set is really, really exciting for about 47 minutes. And after that, (laughs) it's not as as exciting. And I wanted to to play with that a little bit. As I was reading this, it did strike me that it would make a very good film. It's, you know, you don't have to have a huge budget, although it is in Morocco. The, the the locations are quite tightly focused at hotels, basically, hotels and a little bit of view from a bus, and that's it, right. isn't it? Rick's American Cafe, which is a replication of the actual you know, ca- cafe that appears in the film Casablanca, which is a, you know, an actual restaurant in, in Casablanca. So h- how did you decide that this was going to be a novel? What's the difference between writing a novel and a film? Um, primarily a novelist. I think, oh, I think of stories as novels, and um, the screen plays are always just something I do on the side for, for fun. And also I think what's what's fun about writing scripts, you know, I've only written maybe three at this point, is that you know, writing a novel is very lonely in a way. You're by yourself, you're spending a lot of time in a room by yourself with pen and paper for well, I always start a novel with pen and paper and then switch later on to using a laptop. But I think that what's so fun about writing scripts every once in a while is that they're a collaborative effort. You can write there's a reason there's so many screenwriting partners because writing a screenplay really lends itself to two people working together and kind of acting out the conversation or running ideas by each other. So in that sense, it's really fun to work on in scripts when you feel that you've had enough time being by yourself in a room. <laughs> you're also a founding editor of The Believer magazine. So you work collaboratively a lot. You're a journalist as well as a novelist and a screenwriter. The Believer is a magazine that I started about 11 years ago now, um, 11 and a half years ago, with two of my classmates from Columbia. And I think that that also came from the desire to be less alone. I'm making it sound like it's a very lonely. Writing is very lonely in a way. And I think the reason that we read books, um, I think the reason anyone reads books is to actually know that you're less alone. And I think part of the reason I write novels is to know that I'm less alone. And, you know, if, if I'm doing my job right Ideally, they would make the readers feel that they're less alone. Um, but there is something about the loneliness of writing. And I think the goal of starting The Believer in some in some sense was to actually open up the conversation about books that I was just having with my classmates, my former classmates, to a larger audience, meaning both the writers who write for The Believer and also the readers who, who read The Believer. Uh, it's very exciting for me when I meet someone who's read an article in The Believer that they really relate to and want to talk to about talk about because I feel like, oh, wow, this conversation has been extended beyond just me and my friend or me and the writer. This has actually become a, a conversation that has brought two people together who have never met but who have literally read the same thing. And that's to me, is, is very exciting. Just going back to the book now, I mentioned that it referred to different art forms. And the one that we haven't mentioned is poetry. And poetry is something you, you've referred to in the past. In your first novel, mm-hmm. a woman who, who is held at gunpoint um, recites poetry to to distract 
the person who may be going to kill her. In this, the title is taken from a Rumi poem, which I didn't know, and I was really, really taken with it. Tell us about what what poetry means to you. Well, in terms of the diver's clothes lie empty, I was about two-thirds through a first draft of the novel, and I was showing it to a friend, and I said, you know, the one thing I don't have yet is, is a title. I don't have a title, and what, you know, what should I do? And she said, well, you know, you've always had very good luck in the past looking toward poetry, you know, to find, mining poetry to find a title. And I knew already that the protagonist in my book was a diver. It was very important to me that she was a diver, because um, I'd never had a protagonist before who was an athlete, and I, I like sports, and I, I also thought it'd be interesting, given that the protagonist suffers from teenage acne and is always trying to hide her face that she would be drawn toward diving because in diving it's all about the shape her body makes when she dives off the board. You know, but there's a line in the book about when she, by the time she's come up for air, the judges have already determined their score and it has nothing to do with her, with her face or her, her physical appearance. It's the shape her body makes in the distance. And so my friend said, "Well, there's that poem by Rumi, you know, that has a diver in it. Maybe you could look in the lines of that poem and maybe there's something there. She was just suggesting it offhandedly. And she said, you know the one I'm talking about. And I had, I said, yeah, I think I do, even though I had no idea, but she's very smart and I wanted to impress her. So I said, oh yeah, I, I think I know which poem you're talking about. And then I um, promptly after, after she left the office, we were meeting on Valencia Street in the Believer offices. I went to the, my favorite bookstore, which is across the street, it's a secondhand bookstore. And and bought a book by Rumi, and I was so excited to find the poem. I remember standing outside in the sidewalk. It was a very busy day, and I think it was a Saturday, and people were just, it was kind of a mob scene, but I didn't have time to even, the mental capacity to even go back to the office. I really wanted to read the poem, and I read it right there standing in the middle of the sidewalk, and I got chills when I read it because the poem was so much about what the book was about and encapsulated so much of what it's about identity about identity and, and doubles and the slipperiness of identity and who we are and i and i knew right away that i wanted to use it as my title thank you very much thank you vandela vida and the divers clothes lie empty is published by atlantic next week we'll bring you news of the winner of the 2015 guardian first book award The six shortlisted books range from poetry to novels to reportage from Russia. Which will it be? We'll just have to wait and see. Until then, from me, Claire Armitstead, and producer Susanna Trezillian, whatever that might mean, goodbye. The Guardian. (laughs) 